All right, well, am I good? Great. Good morning. Um, it's good to be here with you guys this morning, and um, I just want to let you know, this past week I royally messed up my back, like really bad, so hurt it, and that's the bad news. Um, the good news for me in that is this morning I actually get to preach behind a real pulpit, all right? I figured it'd be better to like have this to support me than have to like scrape my face off the floor after service. So, um, and the good news for you is there's a good chance this morning will be the shortest message <laughs> that I've ever preached. All right. Okay. A little few amens out there. Hallelujahs. Here we go. All right. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them and open them to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, then Mark. We're going to be in chapter 4. As a church, we have been walking through the book of Mark, and we will spend the better half of this year um, focusing specifically on the life of Jesus. And so we are this morning in Mark chapter 4. Um, our task really this morning was to kind of go through most of the chapter, but I'm going to focus really on the first 20 verses. And so uh, I'm just going to read the first... Uh, Two and a half verses here, and then I'll, I'll pray for our time. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for... This morning, I thank you for your word, Lord, and my prayer for your people this morning is that you would give us ears that hear, that you would give us eyes that see, Lord, and I just pray that you would um, speak now through your word. I pray you would speak into um, maybe the dark places of our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would speak into the hurting places of our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that now you would even speak into the empty places of our hearts, Father. We ask these things in your holy, precious name. Amen. Well, in the words of Michael Scott, secrets, secrets are no fun. Secrets, secrets hurt someone. Perhaps you know that saying, familiar with it. Maybe you've heard the truth in it or seen the truth in it before. What we're going to do this morning as we look at Mark chapter 4 is we are going to see, remember we're really focusing on the life of Christ, on Jesus' life, and what we will see in today's passage is that Jesus tells, Jesus told secrets. Just the idea that Jesus, there are certain things he wanted to keep from certain people and reveal them to certain other folks. Usually you don't keep a secret unless it's important. And today we're going to read a secret that Jesus reveals. And this isn't just any ordinary secret. This is an incredibly important secret. In this secret, Jesus will reveal to us a very essential aspect to his kingdom, to God's kingdom. 
Like I said, we've been going through the book of Mark, and in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, we read that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. We know that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of God and to declare God's kingdom was at hand. The, the kingdom of God is the power of God in heaven entering our world. That's what Jesus does. When he steps down onto earth, he brings the power of God in heaven to our realm. To this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen the power of this kingdom on display. Primarily, we've seen his power on display. We've seen Jesus go about call sinners to repentance, offer forgiveness of sins. We've seen him healing the sick, casting out demons. In fact, when God's kingdom is fully present, we will see a total healing of every brokenness and alienation across every aspect of human life. Social, economical, racial, emotional, physical, spiritual, psychological. God is in the process of making all things as they should be. And I, and I can't, I don't know about you guys, I've been around 35 years on this earth, and this is a time when, for me, I'm like, bring it now, sweet Jesus, all right? Bring it now. We see the moaning of creation, the, the, the strife just within our country, a lot of times lately along racial boundaries. And, and for me personally, just even that brokenness, that sign of a fracture in our country, for me personally, is, brings about a tremendous amount of grief just even like what Jason said last week I mean you look out right now and there could easily the church could become incredibly divided and tremendously discouraged God's kingdom is here God's kingdom is here it's among us we have the ability to make things the way they should be only because the power is with Jesus We've seen the promise of God's kingdom is the promise that all will be as it should be. Now, the secret that Jesus is going to tell us this morning is how we enter that kingdom. How we enter the power of the kingdom of God. And the answer we see is actually found in verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to how you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. See, the reality is, as we consider and contemplate the brokenness of our world, as we reflect and think about the brokenness in our hearts, in our own lives, there's not a single soul in this room who does not long for a life that is fulfilled, for a life that is completely whole and to be exactly how it should be. Jesus says that the secret to the fullest life you can have the true life. The secret is to hear. The secret is to listen to Jesus. We've seen that because Jesus displays such a unique power, a wonderful power, that he is drawing quite a crowd. As we open up in Mark chapter 4, we see the crowd. Jesus cannot get away from them. Wherever he goes, be it the countryside, the city, in his own home, by the sea, wherever he goes, he's surrounded by a crowd. People are hearing and seeing him do amazing things, and they want to be a part of it. 
In chapter 4, we see the Jesus really at the height of his popularity. Mark tells us that the crowd was so large that just to get room, to create space so he could teach them freely, our boy had to get in a boat and put out at sea, all right? That was his pulpit for the day, was a boat and the water. And as he sits and begins his teaching, Jesus looks out at the crowd. Jesus is fully aware that that crowd, represented in that crowd, was a full range of hearing and understanding, He was aware that the mystery of the kingdom of God was being worked out in many of their hearts. And at the same time, many were hearing the same words, the same message, and were actively rejecting it, hardening their hearts, rejecting the message Jesus came to bring. In fact, if you were to look at at chapter 3, we saw this last week, that chapter 3 really gives us story after story after story of different people responding differently to the same message Jesus preached. We see the Pharisees, they listen with their sinister motives, looking for ways to trap and indict Jesus. We see Jesus' family, what's their response? They're embarrassed by their family member and what he's saying and what he's doing. They're embarrassed by his message. We see the crowds, and what what response do the crowds have? They want to go wherever Jesus is, seeking thrills and being amused and entertained. And then we have the disciples who, who abandoned everything, heard the same words, gave up everything to follow him. Why such a variety of responses? It's the same message. He's saying the same thing. Different responses. Why? Jesus uses a story to explain why people can respond so differently to the exact same message. Why different people have different responses to the gospel message. Jesus tells us the secret is in your hearing. It's in your hearing. So Jesus tells him the story. He tells him the story of a sower, a farmer, a gardener, a man who is going about on his property recklessly scattering seeds. And as he throws the seeds out, Jesus says that some seeds will fall along the path, hardened soil, and, and the birds will come quickly and they will eat up the seed and will have no chance to penetrate the soil. Other seed, as he scatters it, will fall along rocky places, rocky places where the soil is, is very shallow. And and the the seed will germinate, it will begin to take root, but soon enough the heat will come up, the sun will come up, and it will scorch and wither the plant and it will fade away. Still yet other seed he will throw, he will cast out, and that seed says will fall in the midst of thorns. Other plants that are growing in that soil, the soil may be rich, it may be deep, but because it's crowded out, Cluttered by other plants, the roots will begin to be cluttered out and you will not see fruit bear on this seed as it grows. And yet, same seed will be thrown out and it will find beautiful, rich, deep soil. And as the seed begins to germinate, the roots set in and the seed begins to grow. It grows so much, it grows so high that it will begin to bear fruit, much fruit, will come from this seed. Jesus says, listen, that's like the kingdom of God. That is like the kingdom of God. Jesus told the secret, he reveals the secret with a parable. The tool of choice for Jesus when teaching the kingdom of God was a parable. 
He used parables often. In fact, in Mark, this is the first real concentrated portion of teaching that we see that we've come across. And there's not a lot of it in Mark. In Mark chapter 4, we will see one parable after another. Using parables, it was as a common way of teaching for rabbis and for philosophers of the day. And Jesus was really, really good at using parables. Simply what the word parable means is to throw alongside. That's what the word itself means. In order for me to teach you about that over there, I want you to look at this right here. So Jesus throws, to teach them about God's servant, he throws a sower along God's servant. To teach them about God's word, he throws it and talks about a seed alongside of God's word. And to talk about our hearts and the way we respond when a seed is sown in our hearts, he talks about us as if we are soil. This is how he taught. Now, this is obviously a useful technique for teaching, right? The useful stories, telling stories is a useful way to make points. It's just this past spring, I bumped into a guy at a conference who used to attend Parkview. And I did not know him, but he knew me just from teaching and being up front. And he came to me and he said, oh, man. And we, he was kind of asking about how things were at church. And it had been a while since he had been at church. And he had been at Parkview. It had been a number of years. And he said, I'll never forget and, he, and I was like, oh, no. You know, he's talking about a time that I preached. I'll never forget. And what came out of his mouth was a story, was a story that I told. And I thought to myself, okay, what was the point of that story? I, I wish you would have shared with me the point I was trying to make rather than the story, but so be it. He, he told me what it was, right? He, the point is he remembered the story. They have a way of, stories have a way of searing truth into our minds. It's a helpful, a useful tool to teach. However, the parables that Jesus told were not just nifty little illustrations. They were a device that Jesus used to reveal kingdom truths to some while simultaneously concealing the truth from others. After Jesus told the parable, he finds time with his disciples to teach them further on the meaning and what he is up to. Read in verse 10, and he was alone, those around him, what the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. To explain the secret... Jesus points his disciples back to the Old Testament, back to a portion in Isaiah. And it's important to understand what was going on in Isaiah's time, to understand why would Jesus be pointing back there. In Isaiah's time, what we see is that God's people had fallen away, really had given themselves to the sin of idolatry. They saw the nations around them were giving their lives, worshiping idols, and over and over and over again, Israel wanted to worship idols as well. So they made idols of gold and silver, and they set them in their holy places, and they gave their lives. They devoted worship. They devoted their hearts to these idols. Now, one of the foundational realities in human life throughout time is that you become just like what you worship. That's the truth. Whatever it is you place up there on that pedestal and you ascribe your worship to and you give your heart to, over time you will become just like what you worship. This truth is supposed to be a glorious, beautiful, marvelous truth. As we are created in the image of God, 
And we give our lives to God in worship and he sits in that center place of our heart. Over time, the idea is that we will be conformed into his image and we will become to look more and more like our father. However, the way it worked itself out in Isaiah's day was that they became just like their idols that they worshipped. The gods they cried out to, they could not hear them. Their ears did not work. Their eyes could not see them. And as a result, the people became just like them. Deaf and blind, and their hearts were hardened. Their hearts made of stone, unable to respond to God. How terrifying is that? Isaiah was sent with a mission to, to, to preach a message to these people. God is speaking, and they can't hear him. Their God is speaking to them, and they cannot hear him. He is standing before them, and they don't recognize him because their hearts have become hardened and calloused. God will come to his people. He will speak words of grace and of truth and of hope and of promise. But those words will fall on deaf ears. The, the living God will come to you and will offer true, beautiful life. And you will respond. They responded like a block of wood, hard, unable to see the truth. So God sends Isaiah. He says, my judgment is on my people. Isaiah, go to my people and declare my name to them. But do it in such a way that reveals just how far they have fallen. Isaiah, I am sending you not to stir up repentance, but to bring about judgment. I am sending you not to bring about a revival, but to send my people to exile. I am sending you to confirm my judgment. That's exactly what happens when Isaiah proclaims the message. God's judgment falls on his people and off into exile they go because their hearts have been hardened. Their ears are deaf. They cannot see or hear the message that is before them. Jesus is saying the exact same thing is happening with me and my ministry. God is working now like he worked in the past. This is a wicked generation. Now instead of bowing their hearts and giving their lives to blocks of wood and images made of gold and silver, they're bowing down to rules and religious systems that have been set in place. And they're worshiping religion and their self-righteousness rather than the one true God. And it does not matter what you put in that place. As long as it's not the one true God, this is what happens. Their hearts were hardened. God, Jesus is standing in front of them and their eyes can't see his glory. Salvation is before them and their hearts do not leap with joy. What a terrifying, terrifying reality. Jesus is saying, my parables will confirm the state of your heart. The lessons that I'm teaching, they will show you much about my kingdom. They will show you more about your heart. Thankfully, not everyone fits that description, right? Jesus has the disciples. There are men who have forsaken everything, who have seen Jesus in his beauty and in his glory and have responded in joy and sacrifice and service. And they've given his li their lives to him. 
The parables serve to confirm their hearts as well. So Jesus takes these men and he begins to unpack and to explain to them the significance of this parable. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? See, what Jesus is telling these men is that what's going to follow really hinges on this truth. This parable is foundational. It, it matters how you hear. Right? Faith comes by hearing. It matters how you hear. This parable ultimately serves for them when he preached it, and for us today it should serve in the same way, ultimately as a hearing test. And praise Jesus, this is not one that you need a hearing aid to try and recalibrate or whatever you do to make it work. This is a different kind of hearing test. There are many people who think they are in the kingdom, who think that they have heard him, but they have not. So he shows his disciples in the parable what it means to truly, what authentic hearing looks like. Many different ways people respond to the message of the kingdom. So as he begins to, pick it, to unpack it, what we see is these four different types of soil ultimately resent, represent four different types of hearts. And just as we read them, I think it would be good to just evaluate your heart and see, okay, where are you in this? So in verse 15, he says, and these are the ones, yeah, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This is the path. This is where the soil is hardened from walking and trampling on it over and over and over again. Right? This really for us probably represents sort of an intellectual, a cultural awareness of what the message is of Christianity. And this familiarity with Christianity, this cultural awareness of this book and of Jesus actually serves as a barrier. And, and keeps, it keeps the seed from penetrating the heart. The person's heart may be hardened with presuppositions, distortions, and prejudices which keep the truth from going inside the heart. Yes, some may be hostile to the gospel, completely opposed to the message of the kingdom, but more than likely, this represents simply the uninterested, the person who just doesn't care. Yeah, that was what my grandma said. That's what my mom said. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a familiar with that. I get it. But it doesn't get in the heart. There's no root taking place, and there's no change as a result. I think this is especially true in the Midwest and in certain parts of our area where, where the Bible has been taught wildly, widely um, and, and well for generations. And oftentimes people can grow up and this familiarity can keep us from it. In some ways, some people think, I'm good, I've got it. And really they have no idea what his kingdom is about. Their hearts have been hardened. He also says that the, the seed falls on rocks. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When the, then, when tribulations or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So for some of us, the word has fallen on our hearts, and there may be an emotional experience, but not a full understanding 
The seed will begin to germinate, but the roots won't take. When the sun comes up, when troubles start to show up in our life, the seed is the first thing that goes. The sun scorches it. These are the people that can't take the heat. And see, the unfortunate reality about the Christian life is that there is heat, right? This is the way that the faith works itself out in our life. It cannot work its way out apart from heat. It's the nature of living. Like nowhere in this book does he guarantee that your life on earth will be okay, that your back won't hurt, that you won't get sick, that you won't lose a loved one. That relationships won't be difficult. That the money may not come in like you want the money to come in. Like nowhere in the Bible does it guarantee that's what kingdom life looks like. We've perverted it. We've been really good at perverting it and making the blessed life look like a life of abundance. But that's not what Jesus' life looked like. That's not what his disciples' life looked like. And it may not be what your life looks like. Your faith Evident, active in your life, the way you want to evaluate your faith in your life, don't go to the bank account to see what your faith looks like. Check out the root. Are there fruit hanging from the limbs? When the heat comes, can you still stand? When that guy leaves or that gal leaves, are you still standing? The next heart that we see in verses 18 and 19 is the crowded heart. The crowded heart. I think there's probably many of us that can relate to us, to this one specifically. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The seed is sown and a heart that has many other seeds sown. They show some commitment to Christ, absolutely. But they are worshiping more than just Jesus. Jesus isn't the Lord of their life. He's cornered off to a certain part of their heart. Yes, they say they love him, but they have many loves. They have many, many loves. If your life has stalled out, if you do not see growth, if you're looking at the branches and there's no fruit, what else is in the heart? Are there people that are in there where only Jesus should be? Are there things, shows, cubs in there where only Jesus should be? It's a crowded heart. This is why the psalmist cries out and his prayer is that he would that his heart would be united, that it may fear God's name, right? As we see other things present in our life, that should be our prayer, that our heart is united. And the final soil that we see is the fruitful soil, but those that were sown on the ground, on the good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This is what the picture of true, authentic hearing looks like. He gives us a test. If you do not know what soil your heart represents, he gives us a wonderful test. There's a progression here. He says, for the seed 
that has been planted in the good soil, they accept. The soil accepts the seed. It accepts the word. Now, this is not a seed that's been divided. The soil doesn't accept just a portion of the seed. The soil protect, uh, accepts all of the seed. Like when we take this book, we do not have a liberty, a freedom, or a right to pick and choose what parts of the seed we want planted in our life. That's not an option. This is the seed. And if you split the seed, it won't bear fruit. It's as simple as that. We don't get to pick and choose what we want from it. We accept it. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. Don't hear me say that that should just be super easy. There are truths in this book that should radically shake up your life. There are truths in this book that you should sit with that you should sit and you should read and you should interact with other people, that you should question and say, how can that be? If I had to design it, I probably would have done it this way. That's the truth. I probably would have said, hey, check out my heart. Let's go to the bank account. How am I doing? Right? I would have had those things linked easily. Okay? I would have probably done it a different way, but my way is not very good. His way is the best. And we can't pick and choose what we want to accept. So the progression is the seed goes in the ground. The soil accepts it. It accepts it. How do you know if you have accepted this word? Because there's going to be fruit hanging on your branches. Eventually, you are going to bear fruit. How do you know? It's the exact same way if a farmer goes out. And how does he know if his seed worked that year? Well, when he comes around harvest time, he's going to have something to harvest. The seed took, the soil took the seed. It worked. Same thing in our life. If we can't look at our life and we can't see fruit, then maybe your heart isn't accepting the seed. If you don't see fruit. I think fruit in the Bible is talked about kind of in two different ways. There's kind of the character way, the fruit of the spirit, the way that we live our lives peace and with joy and with love go to Galatians 5 and you can read about the fruit of the spirit and that will tell you Galatians 5 that's right that will tell you what your life should look like but fruit can also be manifest in a different way as Jesus is telling and explaining his parable he's doing it with his fruit he's talking to his disciples there are men who he's reproducing himself in who are then going to take this seed. And really what he's doing here, I think, is preparing them for what they're about to do. They're about to go out with a bag full of seed and scatter it recklessly and carelessly across the land. Your, your life should bear fruit. And, and as a church, I think this should be one of our jobs, is to help one another see the fruit of this seed in our lives. When we see people struggling with joy, we should come alongside our brothers and sisters and help them know the joy of the gospel. When we see one another struggling in love and in relationships and maybe in other areas of their life, we should come alongside one another. When we think about what the mission is of this people, of our body, the, the mission is what Jesus told us to do. Go, therefore, make 
disciples bear fruit. We should be a fruitful people. That's one of the reasons when we talk about multi-site and multiplication as a church, we see it as the best way for us to bring about fruit in our community, to scatter seed so that a harvest can be plentiful. Bear fruit. I think the challenge is, really there's two questions just in closing. The first question is, which soil represents your heart? As you hear these different images, these different things, how are you hearing? Which soil represents your heart? Does your heart look hard and calloused? Does your heart look crowded? Does it look shallow and when the heat comes, you're out the kitchen? Is that the way your heart looks? St. Augustine writes, work diligently the soil while you may. Break up your fallow with the plow. Cast away the stones from your field and dig out the thorns. Be unwilling to have a hard heart, such as makes the word of God of no effect. Be unwilling to have a thin layer of soil in which the root of divine love can find no depth in which to enter. Be unwilling to choke the good seed by the cares and the lusts of this life when it is being scattered for your good. Be unwilling. What kind of heart do you have? What kind of heart do you want to have? Evaluate it. Search it out. And I think the second thing is, is where is the fruit? The other question you could ask is where is the fruit? Can you readily and quickly point to fruit in your life? Can you do that? Jesus is pulling his disciples in close. He's preparing them to send them out. He's investing them so that he can send them out so they can scatter seed across the land. In, in chapter 6, he's going to do just that. We'll see that in a few weeks. He will give them the task of sowing seed. He does not want them to be surprised when people respond to their message in different ways. The reality of the kingdom, the good news, I think as a follower of Jesus, um, is that God's in complete control. I think sometimes, especially when you're in ministry and maybe when you really embrace this and you really want to see this, it can be discouraging when you scatter your seed and you scatter your seed and you scatter the seed and you look around and you're, you're surrounded by rocks and paths and thorns. And it's, it's hard sometimes to see, to see the fruit. I think Jesus is preparing them for just that thing. But there will be times when you will scatter it and it may not grow. There's a painting by Vincent Van Gogh. Um, it's called the, I don't know what it's called, the sower and the seed or I don't know, something like that. There it is. That sounds good. That's what we'll call it for today. Um, what I love about this painting is, you know, the, this guy's going out and, you know, Vincent Van Gogh grew up. His dad was a Protestant preacher and I think he left the church and had some problems with the faith eventually in his life. But definitely see this parable in this painting. I don't know if he intentionally designed it that way, but I guarantee it was probably the backdrop in his mind at least. But I love looking at the sower. The sower is just carelessly walking in his field, just sowing seed. I mean, just you know, he's kind of laid on his back on his heels, just scattering the seed, just recklessly throwing it out there, right? I think that's the posture that we should have. 
just get it out there. And if we're not, I think we need to check our heart. I think we need to check our heart. And for me, it's, it's, it's a great reminder to do, to do just that. Um, you know, the first time he preached this sermon, his congregation filed in quietly. They listened somewhat attentively, and they filed out afterwards without saying a thing to him. He was a busy pastor, so when a congregation a few miles away asked if he would come and preach to them, he decided to preach the same sermon he had preached to his own congregation just two weeks earlier. And when he ascended the pulpit in Connecticut on July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards fixed his eyes on the back of the church and read from his manuscript, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As he began the sermon and began to unfold the doctrine of everlasting punishment, he all of a sudden noticed he had to stop because of the shrieks coming from the congregation. They were crying out. He had to do that five times before he could finish his message. To this, this day, that sermon is largely considered by some to be probably the greatest sermon ever preached in America. The same message. Two radically, radically different responses. How do you respond? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you that you offer us a message of forgiveness, one of hope. But we recognize and we acknowledge that oftentimes the thing that stands in the way of receiving that message, of, of knowing that goodness is our heart. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have an honest evaluation of where we are before you, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears that hear. Amen.